There is a line I've been thinking about every time I think about the climate crisis over the past few months, and it's not from anything serious. It's that line from Titanic where they realise there are too few lifeboats, and one character exclaims, but half the people on this boat are going to die. And the response is, yes, but not the better half. You're listening to Navara FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's finest radio station. I am James Butler. Not the better half. Hard not to think that's climate politics for our time, isn't it? There aren't enough lifeboats, so screw anyone who can't make it to them. How did we end up thinking like this? Is that really how it's going to be? Some brutal zero-sum game in a climate dystopia fighting desperately for the little that's left? Does it have to be that way? Well, you're not going to be surprised that the answer is no, even if at times that seems hard to escape. If you're politically involved, of course, it will have been hard to have missed the conversation and campaign over the last couple of years for a Green New Deal. In fact, it's become such a slogan that it's sometimes hard to remember what it involves and it sometimes seems to encompass just about everything. In a sense, that's not wrong. It is, after all, an attempt at a response to the total nature of the ecological crisis, one that links it not to some abstract sense of the environment, something that's out there to be saved, but that links it to the pressures and concerns of human social life, almost every aspect of which is touched by this crisis. And it's deep into that story about how things got broke and how it might fix them that we're getting today. My name is Kate Aronoff. So I have been full-time reporting now for about four years and got into this world of climate stuff in general as a student activist. In college, I worked on something called the Fossil Fuel Divestment Movement, trying to get uh, college endowments, which in the United States at least are these sort of big monstrous pools of cash that just sort of grow in perpetuity. Uh, trying to get those, the investments from them taken out of fossil fuel companies. Uh, and yeah, and then, you know, after, after college, started writing mostly about social movements and then slowly transitioned into writing um, kind of properly about climate, climate politics. And just before I get into it with Kate, maybe it's just useful to pin down what the Green New Deal actually is. Its real starting point was with a small group of economists and politicians here in the UK just after the 2008 crash who outlined a left-wing Keynesian plan of stimulus, intervention, job and housing creation, uh, a plan all built around the need to decarbonize and re-green. So it was responding to two things, a crisis of climate and a crisis of capitalism, and seeing that the response to those two things needed to be interlinked. And of course, it took its name from Roosevelt's response to the Great Depression, a massive program, the New Deal, that touched on nearly everything and fundamentally shifted the form, capacity and nature of government in that country. And so this idea of a Green New Deal, an equivalent program uh, of equivalent or greater extent, was that was revived by something called the Sunrise Movement in the United States, very um, closely associated now with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, and which has also provoked massive conflict within the Democratic Party um, over its aims. Uh, and it was, of course, also a major feature of the last Labour manifesto and the last la- Labour leadership. So uh, it's a, it's an idea that has been adopted on the left across the Atlantic, although with some differences. You know, it seems to evolve through these kind of various iterations. And, you know, it 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 seems kind of a significant advance in some way on the historic climate policy, which is very, you know, which has been historically focused on the question of carbon decarbonization itself um, and linking it here to kind of social questions and really like taking on actually the question, you know, the political question of uh, ecology rather. Um, Because you have a line in your book, which I think is really helpful in thinking about it, which is, uh, you know, about looking at not as a a kind of series of policies, but a sort of transformation in the mode um, of government is a nice uh, uh, way you had of putting it that, that life can be better even if hotter, right? And I think that that's you know because the, there's there's such a bias I think in, in in these conversations about climate change that well you know we're going to have to you know uh, adapt to things being you know ever increasingly um, a bit worse. And so one of the things that has been striking to me over the last couple of years is just you know uh, 
that I, I mean, I wouldn't call the movement necessarily optimistic right now. Um, but the idea, you know, but thinking about kind of climate policy in that sense, that it's not a kind of, you know, finger wagging sort of, you know, everything's going to be terrible. It's kind of recognizing the significance of the crisis and then understanding that crisis as an opportunity to actually improve things. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the biggest intervention that the Green New Deal puts out there and certainly put out there, you know, in, in, in 2018 when it kind of re-enters or enters the, the policy debate here in the U.S. Uh, is that for so long, conversations about the climate crisis have been sort of framed in terms of how can we tighten our belts? How do we, you know, bring down our own carbon footprints in order to take on this crisis? What is the sort of mode of collective sacrifice that we all need to engage in in order to take on this crisis and the Green New Deal really turns it on its head, right? And it says, actually, you know, especially in a place like the United States, the wealthiest country that has ever existed, we have so many resources. We have so, you know, natural resources in a sort of traditional sense, but also just money, right? There's a lot of rich people here. There's a lot of, you know, we have the US dollar, we have all of these things at our disposal. And there are ways to organize that in a way that, you know, both makes people's lives better and takes on the climate crisis in a, in a real way, which we know will involve, you know, massive levels of investment um, in clean energy, but also in, you know, sort of uh, rearranging our, our, our social system. I mean, let's, let's talk just up front, because I think there's, a, there's something that's interesting here. And it's, it, it's funny, because it's something that, that I kind of historians sort of Marxist historians sort of you know chin stroke about the the old new deal the, the the original new deal itself about the way in which it kind of rescues capitalism um, and I guess that's sort of the problem in some ways I mean it's a problem but one something worth talking about it's very easy to make a kind of like vague gesture and say oh well you know it's capital that's bad it's capitalism that's bad and once you get rid of that everything will be fine I mean <laughs> sure but I'm not sure that, that it quite works so simply. And it's difficult, I think, because lots of the problems that we're talking about and lots of the problems that the book is talking about and lots of the problems that people who are interested in the Green New Deal um, are thinking about is that we're running up against you know, these very, very basic questions about capitalism and about the societies that form around it. And there are, you know, there are anti-capitalist critics of, of various forms of the Green New Deal on that front. And, and I think you move around this debate nicely in the book by saying, I, you know, I, correct me if I'm reading you incorrectly, but saying, you know, look, decarbonization can't wait until we've managed to overthrow capitalism. Yes, yes. It has to start sooner than that. But maybe it won't be complete um, until, until we get through, uh, until we start taking on, on that question as well. So, so, so that, that's my question. When you're thinking about this stuff, did you, know, did you find yourself ending up, you know, pushed against this, this most kind of fundamental of issues. Yeah, I mean, it's true. It's almost like there's this sort of alternate world, right, where we could consider if we had a sort of unlimited time frame in which to consider the climate crisis, whether it would be possible to take that on sort of within the confines of capitalism and or whether it would be better to sort of tackle capitalism first and try to build up the sort of the fully worker-owned alternative to the system of production and distribution, which, you know, many of us have lived, lived under for the last many hundreds of years. Uh, but we don't have that luxury, unfortunately, uh, when, it, when it comes to the climate crisis, right? We have a very punishingly short window <laughs> of time in which to, to you know, really change a staggering number of things about the way society operates, both you know, making much more of the world run on electricity, changing where that electricity is coming from, the sort of quality of the electrons that are um, running through running through wires, um, all of that has to change very very quickly. And you know what I say in the book, as you you know alluded to, is that capitalist production systems will create solar panels, will create wind turbines, will you know do a lot of the work um, that we need to. And that's you know I don't love that. I don't love the fact that there will be, you know, people I probably don't much like or have <laughs> anything in common with politically getting rich off of decarbonization. But that is sort of what we're left with uh, is is that we, you know, need to um, need to do all this work very quickly and we live within capitalism. So that's that's one thing. But I think the important distinction there and, you know, why I don't say, well, okay, that's just where we are. We live within capitalism is that, you know, there's nothing, um, there's nothing sort of inherent 
to capitalism, which means that it can't, its worst pieces can't run on renewable energy, right? And there's um, been sort of talk about whether, you know, the decentralized nature of solar power can bring forth a more kind of democratized way of life, or whether there are, you know, material realities endemic to um, renewable power or clean power, which make it so that, um, you know, it, that will give way to different sort of social systems, right? In the way that coal built up its own sort of social order and oil, you know, was a, is, has created its own sort of social systems that renewable power will do that. You know, I think to some extent that's sort of true. Like I do think there are sort of novel things and novel social contracts that grow out of a world that runs on clean energy. But I don't think that gets us where, you know, I as a socialist certainly would want to be. And I think capitalism is nothing if not really, really resilient uh, and really able to just metabolize crises uh, and, and, you know, spit them out. And so we're already, you know, I think starting to see some of that just in the way, you know, places like finance are, are starting to think about, um, think about this crisis. But yeah, I think, I think, you know, we do need to take on the climate crisis within capitalism, but the way that that happens and sort of the, it's not a sort of one size fits all. There are many different sort of approaches to what decarbonization looks like. And some of them can sort of set us up to move beyond capitalism in the, in the medium and, and longer term. Yeah, let's talk about climate policy in the US because it's really, you know, there's, you, you tell like, what is quite an interesting, you know, for someone outside of the United States, it's quite an interesting story about the development of climate policy. It's, it's important for us because, you know, the U.S. is still the global hegemon in a lot of sense. We can talk about that a bit if we want, you know, the context of Kyoto and then Paris, you know, like the, the question of, of you know, U.S. global supremacy and its relationship with the climate crisis, I think, is a really important one. Um, but, I, 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 you know, for those of us outside the, the States, we can get the impression, and so I'm thinking here of books like, I think you alluded to to it at one point, but books like Merchants of Doubt or something like that, that, that the contest is really between people who kind of acknowledge the reality of climate change um, and those who just don't, who just profit from kind of total science denial and so on and so on. But the picture you give in the book is that we've moved on a bit from that. So can you elaborate? Yeah. And, and part of this actually, part of why I wanted to write the book was seeing how climate politics works in other places where the conversation really has not been centered around this like entirely simplistic question of is climate change real or not, which is where uh, climate denial has dragged us, right? And, and you know, Merchants of Doubt, uh, Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conley, I think really tells that story quite well uh, of, you know, just the, the playbook that's been written through, uh, you know, tobacco companies fighting off accusations, correct accusations that uh, cigarettes cause cancer to fights around acid rain, to, you know, this has been a long time in the making, back to the Cold War even, um, right, this sort of denial playbook that has been really dominant at, at different points in, in history. And that's, you know, extracted huge gains for the fossil fuel industry, you know, not least of which is getting the U.S. to withdraw from the Kyoto Protocols in the 90s and really, you know, setting back progress on climate for a very long time. But, it's such a strange climate denial is such a strange U.S. export. <laughs> like it's a thing that like does sort of exist in other places. There's like pockets of it within the U.K. It seems Australia, you know, has some of that. It's like this very sort of like anglophone phenomenon. Really small, tiny slivers of it outside, but really is birthed in the United States. Uh, and and that's part of what I wanted to understand. Why is this like? why has the, the the debate about this here been so strange? Um, and I think, you know, part of that comes from, you know, this, this long-standing playbook uh, of, of, you know, just sort of flooding the zone with information, right? This is how climate denial works. It's like, it's not about, you know, proving some point about whether global warming is bad, uh, whether it makes trees grow and that's good or you know some counterfactual to say that uh or it's not about like creating some alternative theory about what is happening to the world it's just you know to confuse everyone um and to throw out all of this this information that um cast doubt on on whether um whether whether the climate is changing or not but you know what 
I sort of found looking at climate politics the last several years is that, you know, companies like ExxonMobil, for instance, haven't funded climate denial proper, you know, what we would consider climate denial, like these cranks that just like, you know, talk about sunspots causing global warming or something. They haven't funded that for a very long time. I mean, there's still sort of like dark money going into places like um, the Heartland Institute or, you know, the Heritage Foundation, which, you know, has dabbled in this stuff historically, these like right-wing think tanks. Um, but it, that's that's not, you know, where where the real action is anymore for the right. And you can, you get that since going to these conferences, which I went to a couple of them and it's really pathetic. I mean, it's really like pathetic to watch this like group of almost entirely old men, uh, you know, the same sort of 12 or 15 guys go around to these different conferences, do their spiel, talk to increasingly old audiences about global greening or whatever it is their their little subfield is in this. Um, and that's that's not where it is. And, and what's happening now, what I you know try to talk more about in the book, is that the fossil fuel companies themselves, which have funded denial, more outright you know forms of denial in the past, are now staking a claim to what we have to do about this problem, right? Trying to insert themselves as good faith actors in the climate fight and will agree with statements like the climate is changing, that we need to do something about it, that the science is clear. We believe the science, right? All of these things are, are really, you know, uh, common sense for um, fossil fuel industry talking points. And that's a different thing than, than if, if the industry is just denying, denying the science and, and funding those efforts. And I think demands a sort of different, like, uh, approach, you know, as, as movements, as, as, as thinkers and, and, you know, people who are trying to do something about this problem. Right. I mean, it, it, it's so interesting that as soon as you have companies like this uh, saying, you know, oh, we believe the science, we're good faith actors, we need to do something about it. I mean, the immediate instinct, as far as I can tell from your work, the immediate instinct of the, the policy establishment is to go, great, this slots right in to what we think, how we make change, which is that we sort of ask a business nicely, if you could, would you mind doing things a little bit better? Um, and so, you know, I mean, there's an, there's an astonishing opening to one of your chapters where you just sort of go through the effects of you know, various degrees of warming on kind of planetary biosphere. And then you, you quote, uh, Nordhaus, economist, um, you know, beloved of exactly this policy establishment going, well, 19 degrees of warming is what it would take to knock 50% off, off global GDP. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you think, oh, my God, <laughs> like this guy, I mean, this is, this is crazy. This, I mean, this stuff is astonishing. Um, and it's, you know, it's just positions like that, that uh, points keep you fighting at points kind of make you want to hang your head in despair. Um, so, you know, tell me a bit about that. Tell me a bit, you know, about the way that this stuff is now taking shape. Because that, that Nordhaus stuff is absolutely astonishing. Yeah, no, it's it's really shocking just <laughs> to look at it. I mean, and I, I came at that not, um, not from any sort of economics background, but talking to climate scientists about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, which, you know, has historically treated the models that people like William Nordhaus have built, the climate economy models uh, that, you know, factor into the IPCC scenarios as those are just part of the field, right? And have these really wild assumptions baked into them about what the world will look like, assuming, you know, uh, in, like assuming just that the economy will continue to grow, the global economy will continue to grow, by at least 2% every year, um, that, you know, fossil fuels will always be, uh, will always be this inherently valuable thing and really like ar arranged against, you know, any sort of action now, right? And can't, these models can't really consider something like nationalizing the fossil fuel industry, can't consider direct cuts to production. Everything is filtered through a price on carbon. That is like the, the, the only mechanism that they can consider. And so if you have, you know, like a $5,000 price on carbon, that's effectively just keeping stuff in the ground. That's effectively banning fossil fuels. Uh, but it has to sort of go through this strange tool of, of 
carbon pricing. Um, and so just so much gets gets really built into that. And, and what's, I think, interesting about that is that's not really, you know, an industry creation, right? It's not as if William Northhouse was like getting millions of dollars from ExxonMobil or Chevron or BP to do that, right? That's not like an industry plot or something. It's just deep ideology, right? It's, yeah, 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 right. Right. I mean, that's the thing that's so interesting about it is that, you know, you don't need to, to be kind of pulling strings behind the scene because, you know, because the, 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 the priority is profit. I mean, this is this is Nordhaus's line, isn't it? That he, um, it, it, you know, I think you relate the story in the book that he's just won the Nobel and uh, <laughs> comes in and reminds his class in the morning that, you know, that, that the priority is always, uh, you know, the bottom line priority is profit. And you think, yeah, no, no. But this is it, isn't it? it doesn't, doesn't, this circles us back to that question about capitalism that, that runs through this. It's like, you know, that, 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 that you start thinking about climate, well, then you're thinking about kind of the metabolism of the global economy in that sense. And, you know, I'm just thinking about the, the political consequences here in some ways that, you know, let's, let's imagine that you have, you know that 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 you know that things go in the way that they might go, and you have effectively probably can't win an election in ten years' time without having something serious to say about climate. Um, but then you know, with a kind of technocratic, sort of centre-imposed, very centralised national government-led, capital-led greening, you then get movements explodes that might look something like the kind of gilet jaune or a kind of reactionary ecology and gilet jaune, very complicated movement in some ways, but like definitely sparked off by taxation on, uh, on automobile fuel. Um, you know, one of the problems we're running into in the UK is that you can, you, if you're thinking about the GND, like just as this list of policies, then you can see like various kind of more or less right-wing articulations of it, including from some very successful conservatives in our, in our recent elections. So that, that question then, I mean, I think takes us on to, to talking in, in these kind of wider political terms, is how you keep that to the left. Yeah, I think this is why it's important to think about a Green New Deal not, you know, as a set of policy solutions, right? Which it is in some sense, but there's a political logic baked into it which is really different and, you know, I think shares a lot in common with some of the thinking behind the original New Deal, which is that, you know, because in particular climate policy has been framed in terms of sacrifice, in terms of kind of what we need to get up, give up, it's really hard to make the case for it to a, a lot of people and previous generations of policymakers and green groups have not really tried, right? It's been, what is the sort of technocratic fix that we can arrive at to get at this problem from behind the scenes? Or what can we sneak into an omnibus bill that will funnel some money to renewable energy or build a couple EVs, you know, something like that, right? That you don't really need to sort of say outright that you're doing climate policy. Um, but the Green New Deal, you know, says something different. And the Green New Deal I'm talking about, you know, in my my vision of a green new deal and i think the one that is 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 sort of uh in common with with people you know pushing for it in in the us is that you know there is this virtuous cycle between policy and politics and that you pass policy which makes it clear in a very obvious way that the government is making people's lives better that people's lives are improving because the government is passing climate policy and what that does right in the short term is to do something good for the climate right that's an obvious benefit um, but also builds a political constituency for climate action and so you know i think what that looks like is designing climate policy which whose first goal right is to make people's lives better which is a different sort of approach than you get if you're looking at carbon pricing even from like a very um well-intentioned point of view right if you if, if there are plenty of people who look at carbon pricing, carbon taxes, cap and trade, and say, well, this is a very efficient policy for bringing down emissions. And what the political history of carbon pricing tells us is that it's not, right? It, it creates all these feedback loops. Politically, you know, things like the gilet jaune, um, but, you know, even just within the U.S., part of the thing that fueled the Tea Party, right, was the Koch brothers capitalizing on a carbon pricing bill, which paid no attention to the fact that the country was in a deep recession, and that people were really feeling a lot of pain, and were not eager to have their gas prices raised. However, you know, marginal that effect might have actually been, right, there is this sort of 
political game that needs to be played in order to get people on your side to pass policy. And if it's something that's incomprehensible to the general public as something like cap and trade really, really is like nobody can really explain. <laughs> I, I like have been doing this for five years and I really like struggle to explain how cap and trade works. Because um, <laughs> everyone falls asleep before you get to the end of the explanation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's really quite astonishing. I mean, you know, yeah, this is, this is on my mind, obviously here in Britain, because, you know, we have, uh, the COP26 talks coming up. And this is, you know, you, you talk a bit about this in the book and, you know, it's that, that question of the kind of the, the relevance or, 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 you know, the function of these sort of international talks. I mean, they're obviously in some sense extremely important. Um, in others, they're very frustrating, right? I mean, like anyone who follows these kind of series of kind of interminable international meetings where sort of nothing gets done um, and things kind of edge very slowly to doing even less. Um, you, you know, I mean, it's, it's difficult and interesting in that sense. And like one of the things that happens, you know, to activists here is like you get locked into either thinking, oh, well, I have to be kind of purely technocratic. I have to kind of think purely in terms of kind of very policy oriented uh, stuff, or I have to be entirely in the movement. I have to, you know, um, just shut down everything and, you know, go and live in a tree or something. Um, you know, I, 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 I like to kind of try to push people towards thinking about how those two interact. And I think maybe the way into this, or maybe one way to kind of sprinkle some fairy dust, as it were, over this, is to think about the future, right? Um, and, and to think about the way in which the Green New Deal is a claim to the future. The, the flip side of all of this is that we're not the only ones thinking about the future, right? And one of the really striking bits in your book is, is talking about the way in which a company like Shell, for instance, has been adapting to climate change, you know, partly through greenwashing, partly through a kind of like hilarious sideline in renewables. Um, but lots of this is founded in the way that Shell, and this, you know, I was totally fascinated by this. I didn't know very much about it before reading it. Um, lots of this is founded in, in the way that they, you know, do future planning scenarios, and, and which is their way of thinking about climate and post-oil way, way earlier, I think, than one might think. So it's, tell me a bit about what these guys were doing. Yeah, the scenario planning team at Shell, uh, there is really not that much written about this, which is, is, is fascinating to me. And, and the reason we know, the reason I know kind of what we do um, is because there was a, a Dutch journalist who um, got a trove of Shell documents, including these things which were literally kept under lock and key um, while they were being created, these Shell scenarios, um, which they've generally released some sort of public version of this and like 10 or 12 page like pamphlet kind of laying out their their hopes for the future. But the shelf scenarios sort of at their peak are these really sort of comprehensive documents, hundreds of pages long, in some cases, mapping out different futures, right? Usually there's two. Um, they have really sort of like strange, sometimes like vaguely culturally appropriative names uh, for, for what these look like and are the brainchild of um, this guy, Pierre Vec, who, you know, goes to these like, Rand company uh, kind of uh, basically like corporate planning retreat type things. Um, and, you know, this, this scenario planning technology sort of comes out of this sort of cold war intellectual infrastructure. Anyway, he takes it up at Shell is like where it has its longest, its longest life. Um, and it's a reaction to traditional forecasting, right? So traditional business forecasting just, you know, kind of projects trends as usual out into the future. Um, let's say, okay, if we are experiencing 1.3% economic growth as of now, that will continue along a predictable path for the future. If we have this amount of oil reserves, right, that'll keep going into the future. And he really hated that. You know, he thought that was just not sort of the way the world worked. And he was right. <laughs> and, you know, built this team at Shell, uh, they would, you know, have these like long retreats in the south of France where they would drink wine and, you know, just go in, go into the green is what he called it. Um, and it sounded quite lovely to me, uh, <laughs> these, these retreats, but, um, and would, you know, think really sort of critically about what was happening in the world and what was likely to ha happen. And for a while it was a sort of like little outpost 
of the company, um, not really, you know, doing very much. Pierre Vec was brought on as a as an economist um, for Shell France, and then they basically predict the 1973 oil crisis. <laughs> and the higher ups at Shell really liked that, right? Because they were able um, to reorient faster around that event than other competitors in, in, in their field. Um, and so they keep doing these for, for years and years and years. And now it's more sort of properly, you know, Shell undergoes this, this kind of um, rethink of, of these things in the, in the 90s, I believe. Um, and it becomes, you know, more so like a traditional forecasting model, more sort of like, um, uh, you know, computer modeling and things like that, which are, is, is, is not sort of strange and drops the kind of like big world historic analyses of, of what will happen. But in their sort of heyday, we have this one, this one document from the sort of peak of the shell um, scenario planning period you know, they're talking about like a world society of markets, right? <laughs> and that the world in 2020 will either be, you know, the, I think one, one scenario is people power um, of, you know, really decentralized governments, people sort of not trusting in institutions. Um, and another is the sort of, you know, just like WTO fever dream <laughs> of like <laughs> markets ruling the world. Uh, and, you know, they're, 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 they're thinking really, critically about about this stuff and it's a really you know earnest exercise that is it's meant to preserve shell's profits right it's the goal right is to keep shell profitable in as many different circumstances as possible and they you know give directives to um to, to company operatives to prepare right for for these different scenarios and often they're they're right they're not quite right you know about what happened in 2020 but they did predict a lot of things um, and it's just a totally, you know, a totally like bizarre corporate planning exercise. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that's so interesting about it is that, of course, we seem to have had, we, we've got to a place where we've got the worst of both of those um, <laughs> scenarios. We've got the, the total lack of trust in institutions and uh, like miserable global market society. Um, great. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, the problem here is, you know, I mean, it, on the one hand, like it's, it's such an extraordinary story in some ways, because like it tells you something about the kind of political uses of imagination, um, right? It's like, and I mean, a kind of disciplined and rational imagination here. It's not like sitting back and thinking, oh, you know, what would be nice, which is also important, but, you know, actually using uh, you know the, the the imaginative faculty to to extrapolate from from the things that we observe in, in the world around us. Now, look, I mean, for me, there is no future with Shell in it. Like, they, I mean, this is like this is the important. I mean, the, the astonishing thing is that this is going on while they're like you know they're also busy murdering people for access to their oil. Like, really, like a, a kind of amazing, fascinating like the sociology of these companies. Um, but yeah, so there's no future for me with Shell in it. But what it does make me realize is the the extraordinary power of narrating futures like this right um and and there's a lot of it actually in the climate movement right um you know and, and when we think about the future you know and, and so much of the climate movement kind of runs into trouble i think on, on on the question of the future and our relationship to the future partly because you know we think you know i think you say in in, in the book one of the problems that i don't think anyone really knows how to overcome um other than just trying to think seriously about it is like they're just you know the the political decision making that's based on the proximity of problems right that where your next paycheck is coming from is a bigger problem you know in terms of you um than climate catastrophe right i mean this is a hugely hugely difficult thing to to attempt to overcome um at the same time uh, you know it, it's also something that gets turned back against us i mean i think pelosi's response Right to 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 this stuff, or or Feinstein's response to this stuff, um, is so telling. Like uh, I think, is it Pelosi who says, you know, oh, the Green New Dream or something like yes. that? You know, yeah. it's kind of incredibly um, dismissive way of, of of talking about politics. Um, I, and, you know, I, I wonder what you make of this. I wonder what you make of the role of this this kind of imagination in the climate movement, and um, because there's a lot of it. It's often turned towards these dystopian ends, and I wonder if that's you know, partly a consequence of defeat as much as realism. And there's a degree of vanity in it as well, I'm sure. At the same time, it seems important to me to confront the scale on which things change um, or, or, or are going to have to change. So, so you know, how, how important is that, do you think? 
I mean, I, I think it's critically important to be able to think about the future and, and why I, you know, found, found the shell scenario so fascinating is because in the climate movement, especially, I mean, but by the time climate really enters the popular consciousness in the United States in the late 80s, right, the movements which had historic, the ideological tradition, which had, you know, historically played that role of imagining a sort of better life for working people had been crushed, right? The red baiting in this country, I mean, destroyed movements, killed people. Uh, I mean, anti-communism killed many, many people all over the world um, from, from the United States, but, but really, you know, just cratered uh, move, movements here on, on many, many fronts from the labor movement to the black freedom struggles. Um, you know, you can go down the list. And so when, sort of climate movements come into being, uh, it's a sort of strange thing because there's sort of existing environmental movements which come out of a sort of strange tradition, conservationism on the one hand, you know, other other things, right, which which are, you know, there have long been sort of um, indigenous struggles over land, um, fighting off fossil fuel infrastructure, right? There's There's a complex history of, of, of environmental movements. Um, but, you know, the, the climate movement didn't have a sort of like socialist backing, right? That's, it's never, it hasn't come out of a socialist tradition. Um, and, and historically socialists have been the ones to say life can be better and here are all the ways, here are all the ways it can be better. Um, and, and, and thinking really expansively about what, you know, the, about the ways that humans can organize ourselves, right? And so what's interesting, I think, about the Green New Deal is it's sort of bringing that in, not um, not totally, you know, from socialists, although I think that's that's a big part of it. Uh, and, and there are, you know, groups like the Democratic Socialists of America who have big eco-socialist chapters. Obviously, Bernie Sanders, our, like, stalwart uh, Democratic Socialist senator, uh, had played a huge role in that in his campaigns in 2016 and 2020. Uh, and just sort of like unlocking people's imaginations about what might be possible, how it might be possible um, to live in, in the United States. Um, and, you know, that has been, has changed the conversation. I mean, as sort of limited, it can seem, you know, often as the Green New Deal sort of prospects in the Senate might look, however tough a path there is legislatively toward getting something like a Green New Deal. Um, it has really sort of shifted the, the conversation about about climate change, not necessarily to the extent that people are sort of like, you know, across the map, like imagining green, like vibrant futures for themselves. But I, I, I do think it sort of made that type of thing possible and to not think about the future as something that is only these sort of like Mad Max um, Dystopias. And I think, you know, for people who are organizing around this stuff, that's really important. Like I, you know, talked to a lot of very young climate activists who, um, you know, will say, I didn't think I had a future, right? And, and that's really common <laughs> among teens uh, these days. Not that I like, you know, I, I won't claim to speak for the teens, but um, <laughs> of <laughs> the ones I've, I've talked to who are involved in these things, like the sort of community of organizing around climate change and things like the sunrise movement um, has, you know, transformed their lives. No, but it's, it's important, isn't it? Because I, I, I remember being first kind of, you know, getting serious about environmental politics, you know, very late teens, kind of early twenties. And, you know, it was very easy to reach the conclusion that we'd ultimately end up being shot by fascists in a fight for water on a dying planet. Mm -hmm. Like it was, it was quite a depressing time, you know, really kind of like early two thousands, mm -hmm. Uh, early, you know, early mid two thousands, um, uh, and, and so like this to me is just an inarguable good, um, you know. And I think that there's something like so. Obviously, the, the terminology of the Green New Deal transferred over to Britain, and it's sometimes been the case that we've had to kind of, um, you know, stress. I think uh, in conversations about it, like just the size. Um, uh, and scale of something like the original New Deal, which I think your book does very well in saying, like you have to actually take seriously, um, you know, the, the the predecessor it's invoking. It's not just, you know, it's not just a nice piece of propaganda. It's like it's going to be something, not just on that scale, but probably quite a lot bigger, frankly. And so one thing I was thinking about when reading this was, 
Yeah, and I, I was reading it was a, you have a chapter, a really interesting chapter in the conflict over kind of public ownership in utilities, and so one of these big lighting corporations was saying. Um, every step to public ownership is a step towards communism. So as you say, like the red baiting and the red scare stuff in American culture is is obviously in some ways a, a huge obstacle here. And it struck me that what was missing, or something that seems to me to be missing from American culture, if you think about this time around, as opposed to the original New Deal, is a sort of stratum of liberal opinion basically, a non-socialist political opinion that still believes in public ownership, you know, albeit limited, whatever, who still believes in large-scale interventionist government, you know, effectively the Roosevelt position, right? Um, I, you know, it, I, am I too far removed from the American situation to see that, you know, regrowing? Um, uh, or, or is it like, you know, is it something that we're still going to need to cultivate? No, it's a great it's a great question. Yeah, I mean, around the New Deal and, and the New Dealers themselves, right? Many of them were not socialists, but were institutionalists or just people who like thought FDR himself thought public ownership was a good option to have uh, when it when it came to utilities. Uh, and it was interesting because I think at the same time that climate denial has has waned a bit. I think we've seen the sort of stalwart neoliberals wane a bit. Um, you know, there aren't really in, in the White House now, right? And, and mm, I think mm. the Biden administration is really an interesting, like, case study of where U.S. politics and the Democratic Party have moved, you know, the Larry Summerses and Timothy Geithners, who really constrained the Obama administration and said nobody should spend more than a trillion dollars uh, on, on a <laughs> stimulus uh, and were very skeptical of any sort of government action. They're not in government now. There's a much younger sort of crop of people who many of them would identify as progressive um, are uh, have given up, I think, some of the more damaging just neoliberal kind of nostrums about uh, deficit spending to some extent uh, about, you know, the role of government and what it can do. Um, but there, But it still just feels so limited like it still just feels like it's really not um thinking expansively about about what what the state should do and even if it's you know even if those people even if the administration is willing to consider bigger spending packages or even you know advertising the sort of good that government is doing the default is still really to say the private sector is responsible for doing some supermajority of, of, of what makes for a good um, society. And, and and that's in part just because our public sector has been really hollowed out um, or not. You know, it's the, the parts of it which are important for decarbonization, which are important for the climate crisis, have been hollowed out. We still have a gigantic military. Um, we still invest a lot of money keeping sort of foreign policy status quo the way it is, keeping trade rules in place, right? It's, you know, I think the point made by people like Quinn Slobonian is, is really well taken and important to understand that, like, it's not, you know, neoliberalism is, is not small government. It's a theory of state design. Um, and that theory has hollowed out confidence in civil servants, in, you know, the sort of boring bureaucratic work of government, which doesn't have to be boring, right? It can be very exciting and dynamic. And, um, and you know, that is how many of, of, of the people who carried out the New Deal thought about it, was they were doing really, you know, critically important work for society. And it was exciting. And it was, you know, it was people, you know, you get the sense reading through people's memoirs that they were, like, really thrilled to be, you know, doing the work they were doing. And, and we're on sort of the cutting, cutting edge of something. And we're not socialists, you know. Um, and, yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't see that. Even, even, you know, I think there are some, a lot of sort of positive things that are changing in terms of where kind of the political establishment is at. But, you know, I, I just think a lot of the Democratic Party, even if it's not operating from a place of like kind of right wing neoliberal ideology is just so sort of stuck in its place and is really, you know, just responding to stimuli. There are very few ideas that are not coming in the U.S. from the left right now. I mean, it's it's an interesting one. I mean, we should talk maybe a bit, you know, because it's, it's you know, you think about the problems that, that 
that all of this politics will confront. And often it seems to me your answer is one to which I'm naturally sympathetic, which is basically democratization, right? Not just political, but economic. And it's a really suggestive passage in, in the book where you're thinking, again, a scenario, kind of scenario building thought experiment you know, about managed decline, right, of, of these extractive industries, i.e. basically a, a functioning political solution to the question of decarbonization, one that is relatively ordered rather than kind of destructive and chaotic. But there are those, I guess, who would, who would say, you know, given the timescale of these problems, it's going to be difficult to do these things as democratically, you know, quite as democratically as we might like. And so very often this argument can branch into like something I find quite unpleasant, which is a, a you know, defense you know, of, of, of kind of strongly centralized, extremely authoritarian forms of state action, you know, even a kind of very, very extensive ecological surveillance, even defenses of rationing, stuff like that. But I don't think you need to get that far, you know, to recognize that, yeah, okay, there's something to this argument, right? That that it's certainly true that the only entity that can enforce climate action kind of at the scale that we need to, to do it is the state and especially the state in its capacity to coerce. So the, the, the question, I guess, that, you know, something I was left thinking about is you know, what does post-carbon democracy look like if it's not that kind of very brutal action? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the big tension in the book, and I mean, in, in, in climate politics, I think. But um, something I try to, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I reach like a satisfying conclusion for myself. But the book was this sort of exercise and um, and trying to to think <laughs> through it, right? Because you know, a part of this is being in the United States, global hegemon with so much sway over institutions like the IMF and World Bank and WTO, this really outsized power on the world stage. Um, and on the one hand, and, you know, something I suggest in the book is the U.S. should use that, right? Should use this, like, entirely mm. undemocratic power that it's amassed through the worst, most violent means um, to drive forward action on climate change, which is, you know, I... I think in, in my ideal world, right, that would not be the case. The U.S. would not be a hegemon. There would be a more democratic global order. And, uh, you know, that would be, uh, we, we could figure this out at something like the U.N., right? <laughs> That's sadly sort of not the, not the world that we live in because of that historical process by which the United States has amassed so much power. Um, and and I, I, I think within the U.S., and, and I think this is just, you know, really sort of important to hammer home. We don't, you know, have a sort of fully fledged democracy here. We have a really, uh, broken isn't the right word, um, but but we have a, a political system which is incredibly, incredibly bad at translating public opinion into law, right? And so I think there's this really understandable sort of cynical line about the climate crisis, which says, well, democracy is too slow, right? Our political systems are so broken, especially here. I mean, we basically can't pass legislation, um, period. But if we do, it's like through these giant bills that you have to cram a bunch of things into, and then maybe you'll eke by if you can convince one or two senators um, to, to pass something. Um, but we don't have a democracy, right? And I think it, it, it makes no sense to blame the slowness of the climate policy making process here or anywhere else. I mean, I taught, you know, the book book really focuses um, on, on the U.S., but the problem is too little democracy, I think, in the United States, right? Um, in that we have not been a democracy for very long. I mean, um, Black people in this country could not vote effectively in, in huge parts of the country until very, very recently, you know, within the lifetimes of people we're living now. And that's not democracy, right? And, and we've seen voting restrictions come into place all over the country in the last several years um, to, to, you know, to, to make democracy harder, right? I mean, that, I think that has to be the fight, right? And I am really um, skeptical of any line that says, well, democracy is too slow. Well, we haven't tried democracy, right? We we don't have a democracy uh, here, and I don't think you know we'll get to some like magical place where we'll have you know some like ideal Grecian democracy where everyone is like picking, um, you know, we we pick like the 
the legislators at random as, you know, which is, I guess, Greek democracy in its like truest form. Well, I, I, I mean, like maybe, maybe we can develop just, just that theme because like one of the most thought provoking parts of the book for me was just your chapter on eco-apartheid. And I went into it thinking, well, this is probably going to be about the global consequences here. It's probably going to be about kind of the bar between, you know, the you know stuff facing the global South um, you know, but actually, it's a really close study, a really interesting study about how something like eco-apartheid might develop you know, within a state and particularly from the existing political arrangements of states as they currently exist. So can you just develop that a bit for us? Because it was totally fascinating. Yeah. So the way I talk about eco-apartheid in the book, I sort of zone in on, on three and really sort of two places. So Atlantic City and Puerto Rico, um, which what they have in common is that they have both been under, in very different forms, but under forms of what's called emergency management, um, which the sort of shortest explanation is that the government empowers a sort of small board of unelected officials to oversee fiscal life, right? Um, Because the state is in debt, uh, in, in, in some form of debt. That's much more extreme in Puerto Rico which is a colony in the United States um, than it is in Atlantic City. But that basic structure is the same. And so what that does is really take away democracy from the people of that place. I mean, you have unelected officials being, in some cases, paid an absurd amount of money uh, to break up unions, to sell off public assets, um, you know, to override decisions made by city governments, by, you know, uh, island-wide governments in the case of Puerto Rico, uh, and really just cut off democracy and, and funnel power toward and power and resources toward things like McKinsey, right? You've got these management consultants who just get paid an enormous amount of money uh, to, you know, redesign highway systems, privatize electricity, uh, you know, sell off water assets, you know, to, to really just commodify every little piece of life. Um, these like 23 year olds with spreadsheets um, get you know these enormous public contracts. Uh, and I think that's you know that's that's I think we don't need to look much beyond that to see what what eco apartheid will look like. You know, I think there is this sort of vision of, uh, of 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 that word or sort of things like it, which says there's some grand plot, right? that's going to uh, you know that the, the sort of powers that be are going to design some horrible climate change future in which they just get as rich as possible. And there's this really like master plan for, for what that will look like. But I think looking at, you know, looking at Atlantic City, looking at Puerto Rico, that's not the case, right? It's, it's basically just people scheming and grifting at every level to make as much as they can off of every little thing at every, you know, point in the process of the climate crisis and in response to every situation. And, uh, and it's, you know, the through line, I think of that is a, is a real like cutting off of democracy, um, because they, you know, people don't, will not for, for very good reason, agree to um, privatize very decent public assets, right? Uh, or to, you know, fire half the public workforce or things like that. But, but, you know, I think it's, it's grifting, right? That's what eco-apartheid is, it's grifting mapped onto existing inequalities. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was just thinking there's a there was an amazing line back in the you know a long time ago now the just after the global financial crisis it's uh, Jean-Claude Juncker he's sort of uh, arch eurocrat um so it had this line and it's burned onto my memory I remember reading it in the financial times at the time he said you know and he was you know he was defending austerity basically he was saying you know uh, well, everyone knows what we need to do. It's just very difficult to get elected again after you've done it. <laughs> Which I think, you know, this is the, this is the thing. So you know, rather than change the policy, you just remove the the election. Um, which is you know, rather depressing thought, actually, to be honest. Um, well, and the and just briefly, the I mean, the people who came up with the sort of technology of emergency management in in the Puerto Rico and Atlantic City sense, um, the one of the papers they wrote sort of fleshing out this idea it was called dictatorships for democracy <laughs> it's not it's not subtle right yeah wow um, let's 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 come up to the, the right to the cutting edge of the present day because you know look, look in some ways this is a, a kind of very favorable moment 
actually for, for thinking about kind of climate policy that we've had you know, just in the last kind of few days, really interesting things coming from the International um, uh, uh, Energy Association. Uh, we've had the kind of Exxon story today about kind of stuff going on on, on the board there. Um, you know, if nothing else, it, it shows that other sides of this debate, other sides of this politics are moving. Um, and then there's the more difficult question, I guess, to, to, to kind of confront, because one ungenerous response to anyone talking about the Green New Deal is, well, you lost, Bernie lost, Corbyn lost. Um, instead, we're operating under Bidenism, whatever that is. Um, you know, is that better news, actually, than we might have thought for the climate? Because I, I heard a lot of climate activists in the US, you know, at various points in the election saying, you know, we're going to put so much pressure on Joe Biden. We're, he's not he's gonna, not going to stop hearing from, from us. Uh, now, I'm not as plugged in to, to this stuff in the US as you are. But they don't seem to have managed that. Yes, that's that's right. <laughs> I, I mean, I heard heard the same thing, broadly speaking, in the in the lead up to the election, talking to, to climate organizers um, who said, "We have no illusions about who Joe Biden is. We're going to hold his feet to the fire from day one." And uh, that that didn't necessarily happen, and it hasn't hasn't really happened yet. Part of that is a pandemic. It's obviously harder to hold sort of mass protests or the like more natural options um, for that to happen. Uh, but it, it has, you know, we have not seen a big pushback to what Biden is doing. There's been a little bit of nudging pressure along the way. Um, you know, I think there are some complicated reasons for that, which may or may not be worth like getting into the fact that people who were sort of, um, you know, scrappy activists circa five years ago, like at the beginning of the Trump administration, and we're not, you know, in the rooms of the White House um, in, in the Obama administration, we're like in high school, like I was, uh, are now on calls with like the chief of staff to Joe Biden, right? That's a very different scenario. And I think it, you know, understandably sort of screws with people's heads. Um, the idea that, that you have this sort of like taste of, of access to power and that people are listening, you know, maybe earnestly um, to what they're saying, but, but that hasn't happened. I mean, I do think in some ways, my optimistic read of, of what's happening is that the Biden administration is really responsive uh, to pressure. And we've seen this with things like uh, the U.S. trade representative supporting um, uh, a, a waiver on intellectual property protections for COVID-19 vaccines, sort of unimaginable, uh, even, you know, a couple months ago, that the U.S. would sort of just piss off pharma in that way. One of the most powerful industries in the country, huge. I mean, that's a huge development here. Um, not to say that that's going to, like, make the global vaccine situation much better, but in terms of showing, like, a pushback, and responsiveness from the administration, it really, you know, is a positive sign to my mind, right? Like, I think what that should mean <laughs> is that you can read them, okay? and it's not, I think, enough to sort of praise things off the bat um, and say, oh, this is this is such a positive sign. We're doing so well. No, like we have a very short window. The, the gap between what we have and what's being, you know, proposed by the administration is still so, so far off from, from what we need. And I think, you know, part of the long legacy of climate denial is just how low the bar is for what constitutes any sort of progress. I mean, we just got through with four years of Trump and somewhat understandably, people look at what the Biden administration is proposing and what Democrats are proposing and saying, well, this looks great and relief to what we've had and relief to what's been on the table before. But it's still so, so you know, far off from, from anything at the scale that, that would be needed. Yeah, I mean, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, you talk there about that, that, that question of what happens, you know, when, when activists are suddenly actually in the room with power. And look, this is, you know, this is an age-old political question. We, we, you know, there, there's not a good answer to it. Um, you know, it, it's, it's all about being able to keep one foot in, one foot out. And it's hard. It's so, so, so hard. And, you know, I think we all get it wrong from, from time to time, right? Like, you know, I, I look back at things and think, oh, I, could, I should have been ruder there, or, or maybe I should have actually listened there. Um, but, but then, you know, I mean, sometimes, particularly in climate, you don't want to be 
the black cloud sitting in the corner of the room, which would be very, very easy to be. Um, so on that note, last question for you. You end the book with um, a really lovely epilogue, which says, uh, we can have nice things, which I think is important. It's important to say. Um, and on that theme, where do you find optimism in the climate movement? Wow, yeah. I mean, as a reporter, right, I really like talking to people who are doing doing this work. I mean, just like looking at the bare numbers is really hard, right? And I don't spend a, a ton of time looking at climate science or I read a lot of PDFs, but, you know, try not to be too sort of um, <laughs> have my, my, my head in, the, in, in the, the sort of modeling and things like that too much. Um, but, you know, I, this is a bit of a cop-out answer, but I really like talking to people about what they're, what they're doing and, and, the, and the kind of, you know, work that, that people are, um, are, are going towards. And I think, you know, uh, that's one thing, right, is that there are folks who are really deeply committed to this work, have really good ideas about what the world can look like. And beyond that, you know, I just think it's not hard to look around and see sort of little examples of what uh, life could be like, that's a bit better, right? I think about like the life that I would like to live or, you know, would, would like to be possible for um, many, 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 many more people. Um, and it doesn't look that much different, like a low carbon leisure filled world of public luxury does not look that much different than my like best day right? You know, you take like a lovely walk, you like pop into a bakery and get a, get a nice pastry or something. It's a three day work week, you like have some wine, meet up with friends, go to the beach, like all of that is here in some, to some extent, right? All of that is, 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 is sort of, you know, existing in little in little pockets and is cut mm-hmm. off from a lot of people because we live in a horribly unequal world where people, you know, have to work two or three jobs to get by, have to, you know, uh, spend so much of their time on things like childcare, you know, and, and why not have that be something which is shared commonly across across society, have, you know, public childcare centers and things like that. But there are all of these things that are just sort of cropped up and keep us from accessing, you know, what I think is freedom, right? The freedom to like enjoy your life to do sort of, you know, work that you find enjoyable or dignified, or if you don't find it enjoyable or dignifying, that you don't have to do very much of it. <laughs> there's a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of stuff to be done uh, for, for the climate crisis to, to you know, head off um, the worst effects of this crisis. And, you know, there, there's not much getting around that, that we need to build a whole bunch of stuff. But I think if, if the message is only that we're going to work a lot in the next in the next decade. I, I don't think that's an easy thing to sell. <laughs> I think you know, focusing on the ways that a sort of low carbon, low carbon world will will make life better. Um, I think is really um, good for me. I was thinking, and maybe you know, just to close out. Like I had Sunday a couple weeks ago, um, where I met up with a with friends in a in a park in Astoria, Queens. Um, it's like really sort of beautiful part of the city. Um, and, you know, met up in this public park that was built by the New Deal, went to get really good Greek food and walked home along the sort of waterfront path also built by the New Deal and took a ferry home, which is, you know, subsidized by New York City and then took the train back to my house, right? Like, yeah, that's yeah, a great yeah, yeah. thing. <laughs> I really want more. It's not terribly utopian to think that people should be able to do that more often um and that's you know i think uh as uh, as as fleshed out a vision for public luxury is like imagine <laughs> so there is a perfect place to end it um kate thank you so much this has been actually really great thank you so much it's so good to that's it for this week my thanks to Kate Aronoff whose book Overheated is out right now Uh, if you're still curious about the Green New Deal you can delve into the Navara FM archive on our website and listen to me talk with one of its architects Anne Pettifor from just a couple of years ago Uh, 
uh, things are a little more hopeful than perhaps. Stay locked here on Resonance 104.4 FM while I now zoom off into the ether, but I will be back and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.